0: Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram, at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Sarah Littman. Sarah Littman is the author of three books, Jerks, a story collection that came out earlier this year with Mason Jar Press, Fletch, a novel that'll come out in the fall of this year with Tortoise Books, and Doll Palace, a story collection recently issued from 713 Books. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Sarah Littman.
1: Ideally, I wake up really early, um, like when I'm writing on a project, which I haven't been for a while, I'll wake up at like four thirty. That's not hasn't been happening. But ideally, I try to wake up between five five thirty. Um, and even when I'm not writing in a project, which I haven't been, um, I'll try to do an hour of of morning pages or just get like an hour of work done before. Um, I have to deal with my kids. I've got two teenagers um, who you know you would think would know how to set an alarm and make their own <laughs> lunch and like wipe their own ass. but no I love them they're wonderful but um, they uh, they are still very bleary-eyed in the morning and, and wake yeah. up quite early and so they need sort of that backup. so um, so there's early morning writing or morning pages which I have found to be an incredibly helpful. Practice even when I'm not on a project or especially when I'm not on a project, just to sort of, I I feel like it's a cleaning up the plaque, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, and then I deal with, after I deal with the kids, then I deal with the dog. Um, I I have (laughs) you, you have your pandemic children. I have my (laughs) pandemic pup. Um, so I deal with my dog for a while. And then, um, and then I get to my desk. And so my days are typically right now I'm, I'm teaching in a year long program, a novel writing program. Um, out of Oxford and, and, um, we're in this stage right now where I've had this cohort of, of 10 and they're all giving me their, um, their full manuscripts for evaluation right now. So I have a lot, I'm doing a lot of reading, um, a lot of manuscript evaluations. I do a fair amount of private editing as well. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then teaching. So, um, that's sort of what the the day jobs look like. Um, a lot, a lot of reading of other people's work and, and editing and commenting on others work on other people's work. I'm often doing um, part of this year long program is um, regular Zoom conferences with students. So I'm sort of on my screen as most of us are yeah. all day, you know, <laughs> in meetings, and um, yeah, try to squeeze in a run for my mental health, which is like yeah. another part that I feel is also in- inextricable to the writing mm-hmm. practice. Um, and, uh, you know, then dog, kids, dinner, life. Sometimes I'm teaching, <laughs> I teach at night. I do private workshops at night. So that, that might happen. Um, and then, then I crash and then <laughs> wake up in the morning and do it all over again.
2: Yeah. So, um, tell me about running, being a part of, of your kind of writing practice. Cause like um I hate running. <laughs> it's like one of the worst things you could ask me to do. I love to ride a bike, mm-hmm. I love to walk. I'll I'll run if I have to like play basketball or have to. If I do like play basketball or something. Yeah. But like just to run on its own is is something to me that's like I, I just cannot enjoy it.
1: Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to share it because my story actually gives a big shout out to um another writer um in our community. Um, I don't know if you know, Ben Tanzer,
2: I'm familiar with his name. I don't know him. Either.
1: Yeah. Um, he actually also does a, a podcast, um, as well. But so, so Ben has been like a, a lifelong runner. I think he was a runner as a child. Um, and he's sort of always been posting about it, talking about it and sort of, I, I knew that about him. He actually also has this, I think he has a book called like 99 reasons for running or something that I forget, I'm butchering the title. I'm sorry, Ben. Um, that I read, but I, I was not a runner either, um, Michael, mm-hmm. at all. Um, <laughs> and um, but I, but I do, um, I do have depression, and so mm-hmm. um, I've sort of been depressed my whole adolescent life. I mean, since adolescence, my adolescent life has haven't gotten that far, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I hit 40 and largely inspired by Ben um, and just what I've been hearing about um, the mental health benefits. I started I started running at age 40 Mm. Um, and yeah, it just sucked and was painful and all that stuff um, (laughs) in the very beginning. um, And then it's really annoying to say it. But all those things that you hear about running really do kick in. And so Mm -hmm. I I attribute it to saving my life. I don't think I would have finished my novel if I hadn't been running. I don't know that I would, I, I just don't know that I would be still at the whole writing life, even if I didn't Mm -hmm. have this outlet. So, um, you know, you hear, I mean, obviously, so there's the mental health benefits in in terms of, you know, and obviously I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not prescribing anything, but for me, it's like (laughs) the magical elixir. Um, And, um, I mean, better than I'm also, I should just disclose. I also do take antidepressants. I don't want to like, you know, but, um, but even, but even more so, I mean, the, the running has been so, so helpful, but it also, it's, it's true. It's like when you're not on the page, I mean, this is what they say about, you know, your podcast, the, you know, the lives of writers. It's so much of it. So much of our writing is in this space around the work right right and so mm-hmm. and so yeah when you're running and you're not staring down the the screen staring down the manuscript or you know have your nose in a book it's amazing what bubbles up and emerges and what you can kind of attach to in sort of a meditative way that feels playful and yet also just really entertaining like when you're on a long run you know to be following yeah. that kind of, you know but not it's not like i'm always running and thinking deep thoughts at right. all <laughs> that's a rarity but but <laughs> but but just that sort of meditative process that sort of disconnect I think does does do its own kind of work in terms of nourishing um other parts so I
2: think I think that's part of why like I've never been successful with running um at least like I've tried to like start a running habit or something I I think it's like I just don't know what to do with my thoughts <laughs> Like, I don't know how to have the, how to have thoughts that are like detached from like my calves are in pain or, you know what I mean? Like I, or like when I'm not feeling like physically in pain, I'm like, all right, what am I supposed to think about? I'm like just thinking about like, my legs are moving. (laughs) I'm not not sure what to pay attention to. So do you, so you tend to focus on the work or you don't really focus on anything. You just kind of like, as you said, kind of like meditating, like kind of watching the thoughts kind of pass in and out.
1: Okay. That makes me sound way more Zen than I am, which is (laughs) (laughs) um, no, I listen to um, really trashy eighties hair metal mostly. So I have like this one, again, I, I guess it's kind of taken on a meditative quality, but I have one shitty, but like eight hour long playlist. And so I basically just listen to, and so it's that music. There's a certain, there's, I guess it's the, that beat, of eighties hairbands. That's maybe, um, <laughs> <laughs> tied to my own pacing. So yeah. I can, you know, so I do, I, I can't, I actually was just talking to someone, um, a, a dog, a dog friend and he's, I mean, granted he's all of 25, but he just ran his first marathon and we were talking about it. And he was saying how he basically just counts his steps, his paces like mm-hmm. that is not me. No, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to be, I have to be fully distracted with like good, um, you know, Angry, angry music. And um, yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that fuels me for sure. But it's in that it's still in those spaces. So I think that I'm listening to the music, but and I am listening to the music, but but all this other stuff, I think happens subconsciously as well. And, mm. um, and I also do plenty of, you know, thinking about the various injuries that I've incurred along the way, um, well, but I think it's, I don't know, that's like the masochism. I mean, in terms of the parallels between writing and running, there's a similar, there's a similar like pacing. It's a similar, um, you know, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just starting mm-hmm. to sit with that discomfort. Um, I think it's similar. Um, yeah, I actually like wrote a whole article about sort of those parallels oh, yeah. because, um, Yeah. I think that that's kind of what we do. Right. (laughs) You know, we still, you know, even when it feels futile, like we still get up the stupid hill and keep running. Yeah.
2: So tell me about like, getting into reading and writing like have you always been a writer like you've been writing most of your adult life were you writing as a teenager to kind of work your way through some of the depression that was starting to kind of come to the forefront
1: yeah I mean it's interesting it's I was just actually in my hometown in my parents house um, in Philadelphia over spring break which we just had and um I was with my kids and my parents are, I mean, bless them, love you, um, very dysfunctional. (laughs) And they have a very, very dysfunctional and toxic marriage. um, And they're so loud about it. And I think that's what made me become a reader. Like, I feel like I was such a early and obsessive reader because that was a way for me to sort of retreat and disconnect Mm -hmm. from everything. And... Actually, my son said that when we were all at my mom, my parents' house last week. He was like, oh, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder you mean, I get it. I get you now. I get it, you know? So I think it was always, you know, the reading first as a child. And and then there were certainly certainly some formative books that I remember reading as an adolescent that made me think, ooh, like, I, I would like to do this, maybe, Um but then, yeah, I mean, I did journalism. I did journalism in high school and college. I did creative writing and it's been sort of journalism, both journalism and creative writing ever since. I, I um, went out, you know, I went straight into magazines sort of mm-hmm. after school um, and then eventually left and got an MFA and then, you know, cobbling together the teaching, the freelancing, yeah. like, you know, all the stupid side hustles that we do. To, um, <laughs> and honestly, yes. I just didn't have anything else. I, I wish you know. My, now I've got a kid who's a who's a junior in high school right now, and I would never, you know, would not tell him to be an English major. You know, of
0: course. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. But yeah, that's that's kind of how. So it was always it really was always writing. Um. But um. I did think that I was going to probably stay in magazines longer. Um. Than yeah. I, Than I did. Um.
2: What br- What brought you out?
1: Oh, how much time do we have, Michael? We, no, no, all I, no. the time you want. <laughs> um, well, I was in magazines in the late 90s, early aughts, before, you know, magazines had their death. Um, mm-hmm. So it was really fun in some ways. I was actually at GQ magazine. Um, okay. So it was, it was both really, really fun um, and... Juicy and gossipy and full full of (laughs) stories. I have no shortage of stories, and also I was, you know, the young woman at a men's magazine, and it was not the best place for me to be. Right. So, Mm, um, mm. yeah, so I left and went. I went left and went to graduate school, and the graduate program that I was in actually was, um, it was designed for people who had day jobs, um, and it was designed Mm -hmm. to sort of mimic the. This work life balance that we're always, I mean, the work writing balance that we're always trying to have. So it was a night school program. So I, I left GQ, but I stayed in the Condé Nast mothership as a freelancer so that I mm-hmm. could work and go to school. But yeah, I mean, in in retrospect, that was a real heyday. I mean, that was the time that people, you right? know, magazine journalists made money instead of <laughs> happening now. but
2: Working for magazines in New York is such a, <laughs> right? It's like a thing. It was
1: a thing. It's like
2: people dream of doing that.
1: It was a whole Devil Wears Prada <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> for sure. A lifetime ago.
2: Yeah. So uh, you mentioned, you know, some books when you were a kid or like adolescent that kind of stuck out to you. Are there any that come to your mind as as being like especially formative for you as kind of a reader?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, well, formative to me as as a reader um, in terms of wanting to write. So, like, mm, there mm-hmm. were certain books that I remember, like, I remember coming to um, Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus mm-hmm. young and 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 those and just being sort of exposed to both the novella and the short stories. And um, also, also then Salinger's nine stories. Um, mm-hmm. Those were, you know, I hadn't really spent that much time reading short stories as as a kid. It was mostly, right. you know. It was mostly novels, um, and I I read everything. I mean, I had an older sister, so I read you know everything that I had and everything that sh- that she had. You know, and so there was you know I, I think that this is, again a factor of my my generation, but also I think. Um, this is what kids do. It's like, we're reading, you know, those, those cult books that are, you know, wildly inappropriate for you, but you're reading them. And (laughs) And,
2: and adults are like, you're reading, go ahead.
1: Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) Like whatever it is. Um, But yeah, those voices were really, those voices really turned me on to the idea of wanting to try the craft myself. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of palpable honesty that, that, you know, once I detected that on the page, um, it was hard to turn away from.
2: Yeah. I think that's such a great way to put it. Palpable honesty, you know, it's fiction, but there is something in the voice or in the narration where you felt like it was cutting to the bone of like human loneliness or Mm -hmm. like these, or like these things that we, especially as like a teenager, I think when you encounter this stuff, you're like, oh, other people talk about this stuff. <laughs> oh, for sure.
1: So those two, those two authors I mentioned, merely because I was, I think I was really young when I read them, like maybe eleven or twelve. Like twelve. But mm-hmm. but but in in terms of those teenage years, I mean, there's also that sort of angsty romance to it. Mm-hmm. Like I went to, you know, I'm from outside of Philadelphia. I went to like Joe Public School. All I wanted to do was get out of my hometown and you know to encounter all of a sudden it's like Kundera, you know, or even and, and Carowatch. <laughs> and it's like it's got that like lusty there's like something like so lusty about that that like it's just you know it's basically like you know it's drilled down desire and and that that kind of escapism i remember being you know in ninth grade whatever it was when i was reading those books and 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 feeling like oh the the world is much larger (laughs) you know than um than this town um and and got swept up in sort of that aspirational, you know, writer with a capital W kind of thing, which is, you know, I laugh at now. It's easy for me to mock. But but that was definitely part of my part of, you know, my DNA as a, as a young person.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> you know, I read Jerks and I loved Jerks. And oh, thank you. Um, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I did see you had a collection come out before this um, and then that it was recently reissued. So before we got into Jerks, I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, this collection that I'm not familiar with yet and kind of what was going on behind this uh, reissue.
1: Yeah. um, Well, so um, my collection Doll Palace came out in 2014 um, on Dock Street Press, a press out of Seattle. And uh, I think I was maybe their third title. And um, just a side note um, about this book, which I've you know talked about, um, and not, it's not that interesting necessarily at all to talk <laughs> about. But but um, you know because you're a parent to eat to young kids, and you know struggling with that whole impossible balance, especially through the pandemic. Um, I had taken a bunch of years off from writing. Um, when my kids were little, we had no child mm-hmm. care and it was pretty much just me. Um, and so doll palace came out of, um, came out of stories that I wrote when I found myself stealing those minutes, um, returning to the page. And, and really what got me back to the page after a, a number of years away was flash fiction mm-hmm. because I found that, um, well, short stories, but especially short, short stories allowed me to kind of get in and get out and stay on top of things, and they felt so much more manageable to me than a long, sustained, unwieldy narrative. So th- those stories—that's that's how that book was was formed. Um, and so it's it feels deeply personal to me because it's um, it came from a, like a difficult space, right? It came from a um, twenty minutes here and there, right? Um, and um yeah so it came out on dock street and then um dock street press went under they closed up shop um i don't know what year we are in um i guess before the (laughs) pandemic i guess they closed up shop um maybe 2018 or 2019 Mm -hmm. and um and i i knew people were still reading and sometimes people would you know it was it was appearing periodically you know infrequently but periodically in um you know, on college syllabi and so forth. And so um, I am friendly with um, Leland Chuck of, of 713 Books. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's no longer in Brooklyn, but he was in Brooklyn, he's um friend of mine. And we talked about things at one point and he was basically like, hey, I'll take it. I'll reissue it. And so he's just a great guy and was really chill about it. And, um, they put in a really nice cover, um, a new cover. Um, yeah. So that, that was a treat. And I guess that came out, um, last, uh, last March.
2: Yeah. And so it's all flash. And, um, would you like, when you put it next to jerks, do you, do they feel related to you or do you feel like you were doing something a bit different then? And and now,
1: yeah, no, they feel really related to me. Um, it's actually not all flash, but I would Mm, say, I don't know how many stories I don't know. There's a bunch of stories here. I would say um, most of them are shorter. There are like a couple of them that got longer as my kids got older. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the narrative, has, You know, <laughs> I started to have more time, but, um, but yeah, I would say they are definitely books that are in conversation with one yeah. another. Um, I feel like Tonally Jerks is funnier mm-hmm. um, and probably also angrier. <laughs> <laughs> Doll palaces is maybe like sadder, but I think that i mean they're 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 both they both have the same i think they're within within you know striking zone of of tonal registry there um so yeah,
2: the humor and the anger are two of my favorite things about <laughs> about jerks in <laughs> fact <You know? laughs> um yeah, so let's talk about um sure. this book too a little more, so yeah. you know it's stories they're like some there are flash there's some flash in there. Um, and then most are a little longer, but nothing very, very long. I would say probably what, like 2000 words, one to 2000 words, a lot of them are. Yeah. There's
1: only one story in there that's pretty long and that I actually (laughs) had to, I had to trim down, but it's like in the middle and it's still kind of, um, longer than the others. But yeah, you're Mm
2: -hmm. right. And so, you know, the stories are like, they're about the suburbs, um, teens, parents, marriage, sex, self-improvement. And a lot, I think a lot about kind of the gaps between people and what, what we do with them or how we try to fill those gaps. Um, so I'd love to hear a little about, you know, like what compels you or what maybe compelled you to these subjects and the kinds of characters, um, you write about in this collection, you know, is it drawing a lot from your life or, or previous lives? Um, or is it more like observation and kind of, you know, taking it somewhere or, or a little bit of everything, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, I I would return to that word that you used, which was gaps. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, for me, that's, that's where I'm always interested. I'm always interested in like the disconnect between what we say and what we think, the disconnect Mm -hmm. between what we do and what we, what we feel sort of those, um, like the, the, the chasm of difference. And also, you know, more so, not that these are, I wouldn't say that these are, you know, I don't think social media is in these really at all, but like it's something that I'm thinking about so much as so much as, as our lives become sort of fractured by the, you know, the person, the online persona versus, Mm -hmm. versus the real life persona versus the the private behind closed doors person. Like there's just so much fracturing that's going on. um, And I, it's something that I think about actually think about a lot um, sort of in how its implications are for humanity and Mm honesty and intimacy moving forward. Um, And so, yeah, um, I think that that's often sort of where things begin. And then I do begin very much, I mean, this might be sort of narrative shorthand, but like, I do think that, I start with want Mm -hmm. on on some level, right? Want and and again, the disconnect between wanting and having what you want and what you get or what you think you want and what you really want. And so, you know, all of that, again, it's like in those cracks that I find things to be really interesting, those sort of quiet rebellions. So yeah, it's a domestic, it's definitely a domestic collection. It's not, you know, these are not, um, I mean, there's one story in there that's got a little bit of magic realism, but like most part, these are sort of rooted, you know, banal backdrops. Right. Um, But I also feel like that's where the really weird shit happens or like the interesting stuff happens. You don't necessarily need to have it. You know, in the most imaginative place to find, you know, wonder and imagination and all of that. So, yeah.
2: um, And and yeah, it's it's domestic. But I would say it's also like social domestic. It's like Mm -hmm. the small, I mean, the suburb, right? Or like the small society around, you know, these people and kind of their families and kids in school (laughs) and parents working and the people you kind of just interact with. Yeah, um, kinda in those worlds. And, and you kind of put the people in, in, in the neighborhood, like, mm-hmm. you know, and there's also I mean, there is one piece where it's just the neighbor. <laughs> right, right, like in, in there. So, like, tell me about, you know, some of the things like, like the characters that you make in these stories, you know, do you draw them from like your life, are they people that you kind of you see or interact with in life, and then you take those kind of ideas and composite them or put them into a character on the page, or do you look at your your characters more as like fully inventions, or maybe even like kind of inverses or different parts of you?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder what a full invention is.
2: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna come back to that. I'm gonna come back to that in a second. But I was just I just wanted to say in terms of like characters and. what you said, you put the people in the neighborhood, which I appreciated that phrasing so much, because these are stories very much about um, entrapment, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, but they're both self-imposed entrapment and societal entrapments. And even when I say that there's quiet rebellion in here, but most of them very much remain in their boxes. Maybe they are able to puncture holes in their boxes, but they're not really, um, I do think that this is a, Um, the stories of transgression um, to some extent, but they don't, you know, they transgress and then they kind of, you know, stay with, within, um, they don't necessarily sort of transcend their their, um, shackles. So, um, so that's, you know, that's part of it too. That's I think really interesting, like, and maybe that's reflective of my worldview, which might be somewhat grim um, that my characters don't, break free in sort of a epiphonic way, right? And it's not particularly uplifting. Um, but that is reflective of my worldview. And I will say that I also, these stories came out, um, I was writing most of them during the election, after the election, when things felt particularly sort of suffocating and um, narrow and, 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 Imprisoning, and so, um, and so, yes. To go back to your question about characters and where characters come from, I mean, I think we all use the world around us. I Mm -hmm. think every writer is drawing from the world around us, even you know, even fantasy writers and you know, sci-fi writers. I mean, it's still we're all very much drawing from you know the waters that we have um, that are around us. So, so for sure, you know, it part of it is you know observing person behind you and, you know, getting a cup of coffee or on the street. I mean, they're all of that is, is so rich. Um, but certainly like, yeah, so you, you can, one might, and I have no problem with this and, you know, I, you know, take a, take a gesture that's familiar or belongs to someone or you steal a phrase that belongs mm. to someone, but then it very much becomes, you know, I don't want to get too much into the bad art friend um, discourse, <laughs> but like, then you know, you make it your own. I mean, that's what fiction right. is, right? I right. mean, so um, I, it would be disingenuous for me to say that, like, again, this whole idea of sheer invention, like, what is that? I, that would be disingenuous, but but at the same time, once, once we're pulling, these characters become very much who they are um, distinct and separate from, from any other touchstone.
2: Yeah. I think about kind of the, the narrators in the book. So, I mean, there's a lot of first and there's, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of third too. I mean, there's both,
1: Um,
2: (laughs) but what strikes me in your work. And I think part of what makes it funny is I feel like while the narrators are like very familiar and understanding of the people in the world, there's like this, like, there's like this, like distance I think or like a remove. There's like both like a criticism I think behind behind the narration, but there you know yeah. there's also a love there too and an understanding, but I think that's kind of what makes the work funny to me is that kind of like narrative distance, like a part of it but also like partly alien to it and just kind of like kind of like a wow these people are <laughs> It's kind of a wild thing. So I don't know if that, you know, resonates with you or makes sense to to how you see your narrators. But I wonder if you speak a little bit to that um, distance or if you don't really see it that way, kind of your, your closeness to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, so on the one hand, you know, these are these are hyper aware super sort of uh you know super like self-aware and self-conscious in some ways characters right and so um Mm -hmm. there's that that's um and but but you're right because they feel um and again i'm like generalizing for all of them but uh, but i think it's fair but like they feel both alien from themselves at some point like Mm -hmm. like like they are able to watch themselves in move around you know so they have that you know that perspective and they also feel isolated from or or distance from the people people around them and often the people to whom they're supposed to feel the closest they feel for the Mm -hmm. farthest from um but also within the world and so I think that that and yet I would hope and I and I know that that all sounds really sort of um again sort of Despairing, but I, but I do think that that ultimately there's there's that undercurrent of yearning for some kind of better integration, better connection that's um, underneath it all. So even when there is that again, like the chasm, the disconnect, the distance between self and self, and yeah. between self and um, self and assigned role, um, and and self and community and so forth, there's still like yeah, they they, they would like things to be more intimate.
2: Yeah. And another thing that I think about your work and the humor is just a sense of timing, I think, and directness that I see, you know, and the directness I think comes natural to people in first. (laughs) Um, But I find that in your third person work too, there's that level of D- directness and timing is just so important to like the, v- the voice and, and the energy of the prose. Um, and I do very much find the prose to be propelling and and interesting and, and snappy at times, but it also kind of modulates. So I'd love to hear um, a little bit about like your drafting and revising process on the line level you know, like how, how might they sound when they come out versus, you know, how they sound and feel by the time you're done and be like, okay, I've got this prose. I've got the right timing and and the right pace and directness and it's doing what I want it to do.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'd be happy to talk about process. Um, So this book you know, I call it like, you know, it's this book of transgression, but it was also, you know, it's a book of transgression, but I was, it's also my cheat book. So like I was supposed to be, supposed to be working on this novel, which, Mm -hmm. um, I was, is very difficult for me. I don't identify as a novelist at all. And so when I would find myself in a tough spot, um, I often would just try to bang out a short story. And so I do feel like, again, this goes back to Flash and this goes back to how we approach the page, but, and also against the backdrop of sort of our political climate and so forth. I just didn't feel like I had time for the bullshit, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't, you know, there's not a lot of wind up, you're right. And maybe it's a directness, but like, I think that that was, you know, if we're not, if we're not honest on the page, if we're not, saying what we want to say but you know through character not in a sort of didactic or moralistic way um at all but like if we're not if we're not arriving there then you know why should we expect the reader to kind of drag their feet to get there too so Mm -hmm. so that's that's what i wanted to say about just um immediacy but yeah and so in terms of process um i would say again like i get i'll I'll get a i'll i get a seed of a story or you know something that kind of it feels feels like an idea, maybe. And I usually have a vague knowing of, oh, this, this is going to be a flash or this is going to be story length or, oh shit, this is going to have to be longer. You Mm -hmm. know? So I, I usually know that those, that feeling, again, it's just sort of a feeling, um, that I'll get. But then when I, when I actually sit down to draft, um, I try to draft longhand initially and Mm. it's, it's vomit. Um, and I'm, (laughs) I'm a big fan of that because I feel like, again, that's where you're, I'm just trying to chase down that, um, sort of the honest imperative at the heart of the thing, you know, and if I can capture that, then I'm not worried so much about, um, you know, sentences or all, all of that. So I'll do a very fast, I'll do a very fast draft. Um, but then, but then I will edit, I would say, you know, 90% of my writing is editing,
0: um, mm-hmm. yeah. probably
1: higher, probably 90, 95% of my editing, of my yeah. writing is editing. Um, so I will, I will cut and cut and edit and so forth. But if I have a, um, but yeah, that's how I work. So um, it's not the most efficient,
2: but. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another thing that strikes me about your prose is for how um, tight it feels, like how lean it feels, it still also feels very conversational in its language. Like when you when you write from the point of view of a teen, like it's convincing. Like, <laughs> you, yeah. yeah, I think you do. I think you do that. The adolescent POV very well. Um, As you were talking earlier about like Salinger or or Roth or something like that, uh, it made me think of some of those (laughs) pieces that, you know, definitely felt, I guess colloquial for, for lack of better word. Um, is that something that, you know, you think about consciously as like trying to maintain that voice or do you think that's something that's just kind of like, it's just kind of naturally your voice to talk like this and and to write like this and not to kind of separate them? Yeah.
1: Well, Michael, thank you so much for picking up on that. I really appreciate it. I actually just wrote an essay recently on this very thing. Um, and yeah, the essay is called sound like yourself. So, um, without boring you with the details of this essay, but It's It's sort of about sort of how I arrived at voice and sort of owning my voice, and um, I do reference. There's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut's um, "How to Write with Style." His, his yeah, mm-hmm. and so there's, you know, one of his bullets is sound like yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like own your shit. And so it took me a really, really, really long time to get there. I think um, for many years, my. my certainly as an earlier writer, younger writer in college and so forth, my prose was more arch or it was just, you know, affected in a way that was not authentic. Right. And so, um, as we get older, right. I mean, we just got to own, you know, we own our garbage. And so that's kind of, in, <laughs> that's where we shoot from. And I think once, um, once I came around to that, writing has been, has just felt again, more emotionally honest to me.
2: Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, for me, I had to change, uh, genres to start sounding like myself. I had to stop trying to write fiction and like, just be like, well, what if I just wrote about myself? Like, what would I sound like? I'd probably sound like myself. Right. right. And <laughs> I haven't tried going back to fiction <laughs> with, with it, but it, it's, it's amazing to me when someone can find that in fiction, you know, cause you know, there's just so many possibilities and ways, you know, you can, you can do a narrator. Right. Um, and I think that is definitely something I picked up on in your work was it felt like an authentic voice where it's like, you're not the narrator necessarily of these pieces, but it's still like, there's something going through each of these that's similar that felt like it was authentically the author. And I, you know, I wasn't sure if, you know, this is just, you know, like you're finding a way to stylize kind of your own language and your own cadences and stuff. Um, But that's certainly what it sounds like. so. Well, um,
1: thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's all a device, right? I mean, it's all like first person, thought, but it's all, and it's all a device, but that sounds like manipulative, but I guess all writing is somewhat of a manipulation, right. but you are what, uh, you know, which we can, you know, masturbate on that topic, you know, as much <laughs> as we want, but like, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we can, I mean, you want your reader to buy it, you know, to buy yeah. into what you're saying and how else are they going to buy in? So, yeah,
2: I think sometimes it's like, you can start reading a piece, and it just and you can't really put a finger on it but it just like it's fiction like it's you know it doesn't have to feel real or whatever but like i can almost get a sense of like this didn't come from the place where i want it to come <laughs> This yeah. didn't come from like a deeply human place or like a, a place where the writer or author like there's a need to communicate this thing in this way. I think Mm -hmm. you can kind of, you can kind of smell it on a piece. You can, you
1: can sniff out the bullshit. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Allman's craft book. I'm familiar with him,
2: um, but not his craft book.
1: You're familiar with him and he's got this like wonderful teeny, he actually self published it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's a jewel of a book, but point is that he has this whole wonderful thing about the bullshit meter. Right. Because Mm -hmm. you know, Like, you know, like, and it's like that come to Jesus moment. Like, you know, when you are full of it, like, and you, you might not admit, but you fucking know. And if you know, in that (laughs) dark place, like your reader's going to know it too, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so much of that is like, is, you know, again, reckoning with and confronting with your own bullshit meter and and Mm -hmm. trying to get rid of that. Um, And I do think, yeah, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whatever it is, like if you can sniff it out, if you can detect it like faintly, you know? Don't leave it in because your reader is going to sniff it out even more.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, you need to feel like the story is important to the narrator or the writer, I guess, behind it all.
1: Right. There's like an urge. like an, I mean, when I say urgency, I don't mean that like necessarily things are so dire or the stakes are right. so high, but there's a need for telling. And so if you can detect that, yeah. Right. Like – for me, for me at least. Um, and I'm thinking about you as a, as a young parent, but I do think that, that parenthood and like not having time also (laughs) also dials that urgency so that Mm -hmm. when you're sitting down, it's just like, I'm not going to waste time on, on something that doesn't mean anything to me. It's just not Mm -hmm. worth it. You know, there's so many, there's so many other things I could be doing and, um, so many other things competing for my attention, um, for sure. And then, um, now, God, I'm, I'm, I'm old, Um, you know, I'll be 47 years old in September, but I think it was like, when I I was turned 45 in the pandemic and suddenly I was just like, fuck it and fuck everything. Like I'm not, I'm no longer self-conscious in that way of, oh, this has to be publishable in a certain way or, or speak to a certain audience or what have you. And so there was something wildly, wildly freeing about that, um, that I think has been helpful. And, um, and certainly, like I said, this whole collection kind of grew out. It was like, it was like the work on my novel that you know kind of grew out, you know, I never really thought about it becoming a book. It was just sort of right. this side, and so I think part of that, you know, like the urgency or the honesty that came out of that came from like not being aware that it would ever have an audience, yeah, or that absolutely. anybody would ever read it.
2: Yeah. So it's a good time to talk about the novel though cuz we're just okay. talking since we were talking about the war on your novel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me so tell me it's coming out soon, right? I think I saw is it is it on pre-order already?
1: It's on pre-order. Mm-hmm. So tell
2: me, yeah, tell me tell me about it. What it what is it about? What's yeah, what's going on with it?
1: So um, the whole thing having two books in a year makes makes me look far more productive <laughs> let me just qualify that this is like you know 20 years of work compressed into like you know six mm-hmm. months um, so I started this novel gosh I mean maybe I was drafting in notebooks like, maybe in 2013, just kind of noodling around. Um, but I really started writing about it. I had the idea for it. I think I had the idea for it back in 2012 and sat with the idea because I knew again, like when we were saying earlier about that sort of vague knowing of length, I knew that the idea that I had for this thing was not going to fit into a story. And, um, yeah. And so it was a very, very, very long process of drafting. Um, drafting, and then cutting, and then rewriting, and then cutting. And then now it's five points of view. um, But it started off, I think it started initially as two points of view. So um, it just has changed and changed and changed over time. Um, It's called latch. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a it's about the so the so the log of, what would how am I going to pitch this? It's about the potential sale of a property in the Catskills in the summer of 2014, so right before mm-hmm. Trump was elected. Um, and it's about the potential sale of this property um, that's owned by two different families and the fallout of, of this sale. This potential sale um, doesn't actually go through, spoiler alert, um, of, of various <laughs> people, <laughs> various people. Um, that are involved both directly and indirectly, um, to this, to this property. So it's like a real setting based, um, novel. It's a really, it's actually really Jewish novel. So it's a mm-hmm. novel about predation. So a lot of the themes are the same themes that I've been working sort of my whole life. So it's about, it's about predation, the, you know, predatory nature of, hum, of humanity. Um, and so latch obviously, you know, gives you the the clue into this is a book about predation but there's also um another connotation so in hebrew lech is lach which means like to go forth so it's very much following these Mm -hmm. different people and how they how they sort of go forth or you know try to go forth with the um the weight of the past their various pasts that they're carrying um so but that, that sounds dire it's you know it's got it's I think it's funny. It's funny and sad. Um, I hope, um, but yeah, I'm excited. I'm nervous about it. It's uh, it's, it's a struggle and I really sort of taught myself how to write a novel. I'm not, I'm not a novelist. Yeah. It was a very humiliating, not humiliating, very humbling. Um, also somewhat humiliating, but, but, <laughs> but it was a whole thing. Um, it really, um, it took a lot out of me at various times and, um,
2: yeah so my i guess my question on it is like when you're working on a on a book for that long and kind of modulating the intensity i mm-hmm. guess uh, on on your commitment to it how do you like we were talking about like retain that immediacy or that kind of like underlying need to tell this story like is it just you kind of learn the rhythms like when it's not there you just don't do it and when the passion's there you do it or you know do you do you keep working through those periods where you're like maybe the urgency isn't here and I kind of just need to work on this <laughs> um yeah so how you know how do you how do you kind of manage you know a long project like that and trying to still tr- trying to keep giving a shit about it yeah know, over the years
1: yeah. Well, oh, this is going to be a great little therapy session for us now, Michael, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as you know, by now I have no filter, so it's okay for that. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I would say, I mean, I, like I, you know, the, the, the spin on it is I learned a lot. I, I would not do this again and have mm-hmm. it take this many years. Um, I did fall into many periods of despair and, um, with the book um particularly you know i i conceived of the setting and a lot of the big things before trump was elected but once trump was elected it colored things in a certain way for me um you know i've always you know, it's you're like always grappling with futility, and then you come to the end of the struggle with futility and realize you're right, like nothing fucking matters. Nobody cares whether you're <laughs> writing this book or not, but if uh-huh. you're still gonna write it, like if it's mm-hmm. still gonna come and not you. So I would, yes, I mean, I would. There were periods of time that I would put the project down. Um, and again, we talked earlier about that bullshit meter. I had to have some, you know, honest moments of, well, maybe maybe it has run cold and maybe this isn't the thing and maybe it doesn't, you know? And so there were, there were periods of that, um, for sure. Um, but once it, you know, and so I would wait for it to kind of whisper in my ear again. Um, and then ironically, you know, so I did, then I did, you know, I had my first draft, my shitty first draft, another draft, my agent, you know, back and forth and wrangling it. And, you know, she didn't, you know, Time She didn't love it and so forth and all, all of that, you know, again, we can say that for another day. Um, <laughs> and, um, but then at the very end, like once it found, once I found, um, Jerry at Tortoise and we were doing the final push, like it was, it was very intense, um, the final revision over the summer. So, you know, I sat on it, I sat on it, dragged my feet, dragged my feet, dragged my feet. And then, you know, two months of the summer and I really tried to get it in, in its shape that it's in now. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's like if you give yours, I'm someone who always needed a deadline, I guess, because I had, you know, as a journalist, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, if someone said you'd be here to write this thing, I probably would have yeah. been able to do it. But it's, the, it's that like indeterminate um, working yeah. on a novel, you know, like, okay, yeah. you know, who cares kind of thing.
2: It kind of makes sense to me too. Like when the work's getting done very slowly over those years, like the only way you're going to finish it is with a really big last intense push. And then kind of that last push, mm-hmm. whatever's going on in your mind or in your heart or whatever, that's kind of leading you to the work. I think at that point, right? I mean, then you can concentrate. You can concentrate it into the narrative, and then like you probably have a more um, sensitive bullshit meter by that point, right? Because mm-hmm. like you're really in that intense mode, and anything that's not anything from the past that's not lining up with this kind of new intensity, leading you know this final draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. <laughs> it makes yeah. a lot of sense to me.
1: And then just letting go of the fact that like. Hopefully, I mean, again, I'm going to probably jinx myself, but like, hopefully this isn't the last thing that I ever have to say, you know, Yeah. <laughs> right. that this is, you know, hopefully it's a novel and it's very, you know, it's deeply flawed and hopefully human and, and the next one hopefully will be. Something else, right? But that I don't have to say everything in this one book and I don't doesn't have to, you know, and so once I kinda again made peace with that, it sounds very, very stupid and simplistic, but once I kind of arrived at that place too, it became again incredibly freeing of okay, like let's get this out in the world and let's move on. Let's stop holding on to this thing forever. Um, Yeah,
2: that's a good point, too. I think, you know, I don't have a a novel. I'm not working on a novel, but I am you know, I guess when I wanted to, (laughs) I think like when I wanted to, I think some of the weird, I guess, baggage as as a writer to work on it is that idea of like, oh, I got to put everything in here. I got to put like, (laughs) I have to put my whole life in here Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a a way like to to account for it. Like, because you don't know if there's going to be another one. And it's like, the first, the first one I have to step onto the stage and like have the best one or something like that. Yeah. I think it's weird, weird pressures.
1: Yeah. We are <laughs> that kind our of go on worst enemy. Yeah. I mean, we do such a number on ourselves.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you have jerks, which is like your middle child book, right? You got the first <laughs> one, you got the novel coming out. So where does that leave you now? Are you just happy to be kind of done with the novel and getting it out? Are you still working on something? Or are you just taking a break?
1: Um, I haven't been writing this book, but I'm writing a Philadelphia novel. And I, so I, um, there is an, there's another novel that I'm, I really want to be, I just have been so sidetracked this year by various things and, you know, the bureaucracy of, you know, putting stuff together and production and all that and, and teaching and blah, blah. But hopefully this summer, my kids are going to go away for the summer. I have, I have some time this summer. <laughs> So I do I have this novel um, that's based in Philadelphia um, that I have about hundred 150 pages of um, again of the of my shitty first draft quality, but right? I, my, my plan is to try to vomit out the rest of it so I can at least kind of see the shape of it by by the fall. and then hopefully that will be the next. The next one,
2: and then you get to the fun so part. Then which I get is the, is the
1: fun stuff, which is where ninety-five percent. Yeah, the ninety-five percent is 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 really where it's at. So, um, yeah, I really I have to say that I miss. Um, again, I love teaching, and teaching is so nourishing on so many levels. Um, but I have been spinning my wheels, um, and very frustrated that I haven't been writing fiction. Um, mm. So I'm eager to rectify that.
0: was my conversation with Sarah Lippman go check out Jerks from Mason Jar Press and while you're at it pre-order Letch from Tortoise Books and as always go check out autofocuslit.com you can read the latest issue of the online mag get a feel for some of our books maybe even buy one okay that's it thanks for listening Until next time.